listening to Los Altos Institute's course on globalization and the rise of the anti-globalization movement, which ran in the summer of 2022. We should probably talk a little bit about globalization. So um, let's, uh, so now we're in this very strange period um, of the 21st century when we see these dramatic shifts in discourses on globalization, primarily in the second decade. But there are some first decade things that start setting this up. And so I'd like to use the example of, uh, you know, something local and ready to hand, that being Jack Layton's New Democratic Party. Now, um, I found that the problem of Leighton and historical memory appeared immediately, um, like the day he died. Um, that what people believed about Jack Layton changed dramatically in the single 24 hour news cycle in which we learned of his death. Now, some people's opinion of him stayed the same um, and certain aspects of people's opinion of him stayed the same. Um, one of those aspects of uh, the opinion, obviously everybody was very impressed with him winning all those seats in Quebec just before he died. That was the thing we were all impressed with. But the story of what Jack Layton's policies were um, and you get this all the time with the ex-left on Twitter, the ex-left who have retained their anti-globalization by switching to the political right. And many of those people have this story of Leighton's leadership of the New Democrats as um, one of resolute resistance to globalization uh, and austerity. In fact, the story of the rise of Leighton as a national politician is quite a complex one. Um, it is absolutely true that the people who, uh, so before Leighton, there was a process that set the party up to make it possible for Leighton to win on the first ballot when he sought its leadership, despite never having held a seat in the Ontario legislature or the House of Commons. And that process was uh, known as the New Politics Initiative. In the late 1990s, following the NDP's, I guess it was no, the early 2000s, following the NDP's second horrific political face plant after 90, uh, so in 1993, the NDP had got 6.7% of the vote nationally and won nine seats. In, um, uh, and in 1997, they had rallied somewhat um, and won 21 seats with 11.5% of the vote. But following this, they sank back to 8.5% and 13 seats. Uh, under the leadership of Alexa McDonough. And there was this, and uh, McDonough's second campaign was clearly inferior to her first campaign in 97 when she regained official party status to the party. In 1997, McDonough had largely held to the NDP's position of being the only party opposed to the North American Free Trade Agreement and the only party 
opposed to the austerity measures applied to the employment insurance program uh, during Paul Martin's period as finance minister. Following that election, McDonough's people did one of the easily dumbest things I've ever seen a group of political people do as an information gathering exercise. They decided to poll only committed voters to other parties about what issues the NDP should take on and how it should campaign in future. Um, so they were literally given a set of instructions for how to lose votes, um, which they followed slavishly. Um, so the big set of instructions was, well, the, what people kept saying is we only really like your healthcare policy. So only talk about that. Never speak about anything other than the Canada Health Act and you'll do great. Um, obviously, and also like stop talking about your weird radical stuff like opposing NAFTA or uh, any policy that other parties don't hold, you have to shut up about. Um, and I couldn't believe, and all this was presented to the members of the party. And I, I was just incredulous. I was participating at the time. And so following this face plant, there was a sense on the part of the more far left radical members who are either in the party or were let's say NDP adjacent to um, come forward with a radical plan for remaking the NDP. And in fact, they proposed disbanding the NDP and founding a new party, which is not stupid. It's consistent with NDP tradition. That's how the NDP itself came into being. The CCF was disbanded and then the NDP was formed. So they proposed that we create something called the New Politics Initiative. Um, and their brilliant idea, which um, caused me to vote against them, even though I largely agreed with them, was that um, this idea where like unions could send delegates to conventions. Why don't you just let any incorporated charity in Canada do that and any incorporated nonprofit in Canada do that? And it's like, well, it's very rare for somebody to be a member of two unions. It's extremely common for a person to be a member of multiple nonprofits. Also, there aren't counting features that are automatic that the state uses there's, there's no way to confirm what the membership of a nonprofit organization is um, unless they're forced to disclose and they may not even be keeping track of who their members are because they don't need to. It's not legislatively necessary. So the NPI's idea that we should just take the worst thing about how NDP conventions work and amplify it in an unregulated and uncontrolled fashion, I wasn't thrilled with that. But the NPI folks were in accord with me on other stuff, as in much more rapid reductions in fossil fuel emissions, et cetera, et cetera. And a centerpiece of this was a renewed opposition, not just to the North American Free Trade Agreement, but to a uh, body of law that was being signed onto by a variety of countries called the Multilateral Agreement on Investment. Now, the difference between the MAI and a normal investor rights trade deal was that the MAI included only investor rights. 
it didn't include tariff reductions or um, uh, mobility rights or any of the things we normally expect to be packaged in a free trade agreement like NAFTA or the Maastricht Treaty. All it contained was an agreement on the part of countries to cease limiting the ability of people from other countries to buy things inside them. Now, ultimately, the MAI sort of ran out of steam. Some of its signatories experienced some of its benefits, but the grand dream of all the countries in the world signing the MAI, rather than waiting to get concessions for that investor access through the World Trade Organization process, um, the MAI ultimately failed. But we didn't know that at the time. We saw it as a clear and present danger that was going to be uh, the most extreme investor rights law possible. And a number of the anti-MAI folks um, were key participants in the New Politics Initiative. And the New Politics Initiative was headlined by Sven Robinson, uh, my all-time favorite Canadian member of parliament, and Judy Rebick, uh, former chair of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women, and uh, uh, who, um, yeah, who's, um, uh, who's a, I think, a complex person to historically evaluate. I mean, she was the second to last head of NAC that everybody, who everybody knew her name, so clearly, like things went worse after Sonera Tobani succeeded her, because nobody remembers the name of any knack heads after Tobani. But um, Judy Rebick, she came with her own set of baggage, as did Sven. And ultimately, um, they lost a convention vote. In fact, my um, the paper I wrote about why you had to vote against them, even if you like them, uh, ended up being circulated at the convention, although I didn't attend it because I got the flu during a cross-country Greyhound bus trip and um, spent um, that crucial NDP convention uh, being violently ill in a motel room in Salmon Arm. So um, anyway, the MA, uh, so the New Politics Initiative was defeated, but the NPI people had generated enormous lists uh, of supporters and had rallied 40% of the vote at an NDP convention. And it was impressive. And this is where we see this, this, the original brilliant move of Jack Layton was to sign on to the new politics initiative late in the process and become heir to its organization and its lists. This meant that Layton himself had to identify as a strong opponent of globalization, which indeed he had been as a Toronto city councillor in the 1980s and 90s. And in the 2004 election, and so Leighton won on the first ballot of the, uh, the next, uh, of the, the leadership convention to replace McDonough um, with the NPI um, supplying him with about 80% of the votes that he used to win, generating considerable political debt. In the 2004 federal election, I don't know whether you'll remember, um, the NDP campaign had a dramatic turning point. In the first couple of weeks of the election, 
Leighton largely articulated the views of the NPI. Um, and being the first Ontario-based party leader since um, uh, Broadbent in 89, he went back to that core constituency that Broadbent had represented the industrial workers in places like Oshawa, where the manufacturing sector was really being damaged by investor rights and free trade. That the auto pact, although it was supposed to be intact under the terms of NAFTA, was being whittled away piece by piece, moving auto manufacturing jobs. Uh, Leighton was also a vociferous critic of austerity. And in particular, he had been um, sort of the, uh, the head of the housing file for Toronto City Council. And whatever you might think of late career Leighton, there is no question that the city of Toronto's housing program dwarfs that of any other Canadian city. The city of Toronto's government belief that it is obliged to house its citizens is very different than the belief of any other large Canadian municipality I'm aware of, even Montreal. Um, and the amount of public housing in the city of Toronto, most public housing in the city of Toronto is city owned and city managed, not province or federal owned and managed. In part, that's because they took over federal projects the feds were trying to divest themselves of. But it also means that they built a lot of housing themselves and they worked in partnership um, with retirement care and elder care, with religious communities and ethnic communities. So there was a lot of municipal supportive housing and elder housing there as well. And we can credit Leighton for a good deal of that. Leighton was personally and politically furious in 1994 when the right to housing was removed from federal legislation in Canada by the Cratchit government as an austerity measure. The Canada Assistance Plan, um, which had set the levels of transfer payments to the provinces for housing, um, was based on the provinces receiving these transfer payments so that they could execute the federal government's obligation to provide that housing um, and fulfill that right. Without the right existing, it was then able, it was impossible to cut these payments basically to nothing overnight. So in 2004, in a dramatic moment of the campaign, Leighton confronts Paul Martin and um, blames him for the statistically demonstrable increase in the deaths of homeless people between 1994 and 2004, following his housing austerity measures. The national media is appalled shocked, disgusted, this is dirty pool. You can't blame people for people dying, this is outrageous. Housing is an abstract issue, nobody's actual life is on the line. I personally think that that's actually Jack Layton's finest hour. But one of the things that is characteristic of the 21st century left is um, that they can't hold up an unpopular position for more than 48 hours. They recant and capitulate which is exactly what Leighton did. He apologized for saying that Paul Martin had blood on his hands. 
And from there, we see Jack Layton phase two. Following the campaign, when Layton falls short of expectations by winning only 19 seats, uh, although he takes the party to its highest share of the popular vote since 1988, um, Layton announces that his new priority is the modernization of NDP policy so that gaffes like the Paul Martin housing accusation won't happen again. And at the top of that list of policies to modernize is not the party's housing policy, but the party's NAFTA policy. And so um, the NDP under Layton never gives a justification for why NAFTA is good. There's never, they never actually tell you that NAFTA is good or offer any reasons. What they say is, that continuing to oppose NAFTA makes the party look old fashioned and makes it unpopular. And so we need to figure out how to rejig our policies so that they can survive under NAFTA because if we keep saying NAFTA is bad, people won't like us. Um, the emptiness of this retreat is one of the most striking things about it. At no point is the need to support NAFTA framed as a national interest. It is only ever framed as a partisan interest. But because the Canadian media is interested in presenting a policy consensus on NAFTA, it constantly lauds the NDP for being politically self-interested enough to start supporting a policy that they should actually oppose. Um, and what's interesting is that um, there is a rump within the party that gets quite upset about this. I'm, I'm part of that group. Um, and being in that group allows me to culturally follow some of the twists and turns of the anti-globalists who are suddenly abandoned by parties like the NDP to, to understand where they go. Um, they're, um, so there are some people who are mad about this under Layton. Some choose to blame Don Davies, my MP, because he is the finance critic and he's the person who was tasked with coming out with the new bullshit of uh, the party's new trade policy. And uh, so there's this angry group in the party, but it doesn't really have any way of organizing. And if we look across, um, across the world, we see not dissimilar situations elsewhere. Um, we see uh, in Britain, of course, there's this pre-existing group. It doesn't really grow during the, the Maastricht dispute. Um, the same people who are opposing uh, Maastricht in, 90, in 92, uh, Corbyn and Galloway and those sorts of people are still opposing uh, Maastricht uh, in 2007, but they haven't made a bunch of new friends. Um, what's interesting is that the anti-globalization, the Occupy wave of the anti-globalization movement has almost no presence inside political parties. Um, 
there's no real effort to create occupied caucuses within either the Greens or the local Social Democratic Party, be it in uh, the US or the uh, UK, Canada, uh, Germany. Um, what we do see is when Occupy attempts to spin off organizations under itself, they're, um, they're all nonpartisan local groups in smaller communities than those that can organize really big camps. So when I'm in the NDP, I found it really striking at the time, like, why have we all stopped caring about NAFTA? And generally the answer, um, there wasn't an intellectual answer. And I think part of the brilliance of Leighton's insight in doing what he did was the refusal to open a debate because he didn't premise his policy change on NAFTA being good for the country, it prevents a debate about whether NAFTA is good for the country. And we see that kind of debate shutdown um, everywhere, pretty much, that social democratic parties start joining this global consensus around investor rights. Uh, now, this is, there is a different story. Um, now, one of the reasons that we can hypothesize for that is the effect of US politics on Canadian politics. Because in the United States, it is Bill Clinton and Al Gore who wear responsibility for NAFTA. Americans and uh, left Americans make a sharp distinction between the FTA and NAFTA. They largely don't have a problem with the original free trade agreement, but they think there's something very fishy with NAFTA. And because of that, there's no way in which Bush or Reagan is in any way blamed for the trade agreement and investor rights agreement on top of which NAFTA must necessarily sit, the original FTA. So, of course, we know the story of the 2000 US election. Uh, Ralph Nader um, runs as the Green Party candidate with the backing of the most strongly anti-NAFTA trade unions in the United States and with the support of an organization that I'll talk more about in another course, but I'm just, uh, I'm just uh, signposting it here, the Rainbow Coalition. The Rainbow Coalition, the organization created by Jesse Jackson between his 1984 and 88 presidential bids um, is the other engine behind Nader's campaign because most actual Green Party members in the United States of whom there are very few don't find Nader's campaign particularly interesting and see it as historically disjunctive with their party. But, and so, and of course, Nader's biggest rallies are often in cities on the Canada-US border. Uh, in the case of Seattle, it's obviously because of, of, of the culture of Seattle. But in the case of places like Buffalo, it's because NAFTA is the governing issue. 
that here you have all these auto workers turning out to a Green Party rally for the specific reason of wanting to see um, NAFTA and its ilk repealed. Well, we know what happened. Ralph Nader is blamed for the victory of George W. Bush over Al Gore because the number of votes he received in Florida exceeded the margin of victory for the Bush campaign in Florida. And I think this is the reason Canadians, uh, the Canadian left just shuts up about NAFTA. The Nader blaming thing um, has a profound effect on the overall Anglo-North American left. Uh, there's this sense that we wanted too much, we demanded too much, and God is punishing us with George W. Bush. This is what you get when you're too demanding. And I think that really helped to shape the horizon of expectations, not just in terms of Canadians and Americans really moving, uh, moving towards much more centrist positions, but also this idea that of the legitimacy of a project like Obama's. It's like, well, we wanna make sure that any project of change takes place within a mainstream party, within normal constraints and stays inside the discourse, however emotionally sympathetic we might find it. So, um, and of course, when you see, and. Leighton's NDP becomes obsessed with Obama. Um, they get into a branding conflict with the Liberal Party of Canada, which they actually are winning at the beginning. Um, the Obama, Obama appears more closely affiliated and in better touch with Jack Leighton's NDP than he does with Paul Martin or Stefan Dion's Liberals. Uh, or for that matter, Michael Ignatieff's liberals. So the New Democrats under Leighton have this idea that they are the Canadian Democratic Party um, and that the policy package that Barack Obama stands for, which of course includes further trade liberalization is something worth standing behind. Now, this, this particular talk, I, uh, I didn't say it was about Obama or Leighton, of course, I said it was primarily about Jeremy Corbyn, because I don't think we could really see Leighton as a long-term stalwart opponent of investor rights and their ilk. I think uh, Leighton's an interesting politician who's gone through, who went through many interesting phases in his political career, all of them driven by pragmatism. Sometimes he achieved very radical things. Sometimes he shut very radical things down. In the United Kingdom, on the other hand, um, we see a much more jarring shift. Now, again, let me set up some international precursors for this. I think that if we, if we understand Ralph Nader and Barack Obama as having a disproportionate influence on Canadian discourse about globalization on the left. Um, there's a different way in which the 
Gerhard Schroeder and um, what's his name? Um, who was Schroeder's contemporary as the uh, French prime minister? Um, sorry. Uh, before Sarkozy, the, the left one, Sarkozy defeated. Um, uh, the, the one from the three-way alliance, right? Because I'm going to talk about these triple alliances. Just a second here. Um, I should uh, be able to get hold of this. Uh, uh, okay, let's see here. 1997, uh, 1997 French election. I think it was uh, 97. Um, all right, let's see here. Alain Juppé, is that what it was? Uh, uh, Parti Socialiste, uh, Jospin. Uh, right, so we've got, let me just double check. Yeah, so Lionel Jospin from Parti Socialiste um, enters in, so in 19, so I'll just rewind a little. 1995, there is the, um, uh, just a sec here, everything is happening at once today. I'm extra disorganized. Um, uh, uh, so the um, 1995, the Socialist Party wins election in Germany unexpectedly. It has to form a grand coalition. Uh, it doesn't form a grand coalition. It forms the first national left green coalition. Uh, so you have, uh, and of course, it's Germany. It's proportional representation. You form the coalition after the election. There are two significant features of this coalition, though, that go on to condition the demobilization of anti-globalists within the electoral left. Um, the big problem for this, um, so the big problem for Gerhard Schroeder's government is what to do with the Greens. And the answer is to make the leader of the Green Party the foreign minister. It's a solid move. The Greens get lots of status and almost no control over domestic policy. And Joshka Fisher coming out of the first pacifist party to be elected to a European parliament since the Second World War, um, finds himself largely as the salesman for the NATO intervention in Bosnia and Kosovo. Because uh, he's the best salesman you could ask for. He is a very articulate leader of a historically pacifist anti-nuclear party. Who better to front a NATO mission that's dropping depleted uranium on people? Uh, so what and so what this causes is major reductions in the membership roles of the Green Party. People don't try to change the government. They vote with their feet. And the reason for that is they have an experience from the 1980s of trying to rotate out bad MPs and replace them with good ones. And it was a failure. They tried to do that in the 80s when the party's members were to the left of many of the members of the Bundestag. And um, it didn't work out at all. So rather than trying that again, what we see is simply the shrinking of the German Greens. 
And because the anti-globalists had largely grouped up in Germany within the Greens rather than the SDP, um, again, very little effect. In France, something more complex and ambitious happens. In France, it's a multi-round election um, under a majoritarian voting system. It is poison to small parties, generally. So an incredibly complex, I would go so far as to say Baroque agreement, had to be worked out between the Greens, the Communists, and the Socialists about where to stand down during which round in favor of whom. Um, so the Greens, in order to get into the agreement, they need one, in, one member of the French Parliament. They have none. That means that they have to find a riding where people like the Greens and both the Communists and Socialists have to withdraw from that riding before the first round. On the other hand, you get the um, Eastern arrondissement of Paris during this period where they're going from being um, the neighborhoods of unemployed white industrial workers to being the neighborhoods of, um, of, um, under, uh, of underpaid, uh, the, of the underpaid Muslim underclass. Um, during that transition, Again, the SDP, the uh, socialists and the Greens have to withdraw from those, um, from those Eastern Paris seats so that the communists can hold on to them. Anyway, it's a, it's a very complex process, but some, well, the point is the agreement is so comprehensive necessarily. It has so many details to it that the same moment the Greens get the news that they're going to parliament and they're probably gonna get to co-govern France, is the moment they get the news they've capitulated on Maastricht. They're in the same agreement. Uh, and getting to go to parliament, it does, that's a lot of sugar on the pill you're taking. Um, you know, maybe they can live to fight another day. So we've got to, and we've also got to remember that in the European parliament, right, you have you don't yet have anti and pro-Europe parties in the European Parliament. You have Euro, you have pro and anti-Europe people within the caucuses of the large parties in the European Parliament, like the British Tories or uh, British Labour, that sort of thing. The um, so what you see for people like Corbyn is that their alliance has already begun shrinking by the time Brexit comes up as a possibility. So on the continent, um, the, anti the British anti-globalist left is losing allies hand over fist and they're not being replaced. As the Brexit referendum approaches, and so we've got to understand. So we've got to understand that <coughs> Jeremy Corbyn um, seeking British Labour leadership. Um, you know, it's it's thought that this is just his retirement speaking tour. All these MPs who don't even like him sign his nomination papers, going, 
oh, this is great. If I sign this, we'll never see Corbyn again after the next election. This is going to be lovely. But what Jeremy Corbyn did, does as a Eurosceptic is maybe it was a good idea, maybe it was a bad idea. I, I could see how you couldn't know I can see how he couldn't know what to do at, the, at that moment, that, that it's only with the benefit of hindsight we know he made a mistake. What Corbyn does, rather than selling opposition to Maastricht and the European Union, is he sells policies that can't be enacted as long as Britain remains in the European Union, perhaps expecting his supporters or the media to connect the dots perhaps expecting the media to say, you're not allowed to re-socialize British Rail. Perhaps letting the media say, you can't make people pay polls the same as Britain's up north. Or you can't, uh, you know, or no, you can't end NHS contracting out. Instead, the media, the Tories, Everybody chooses to pretend that Corbyn's policies are possible. And so the capacity of his original platform to function as a criticism to the Maastricht Treaty is destroyed by the public discourse environment because no one will actually say that the thing he wants done is impossible. They'll say it's a bad idea. They'll say it's nostalgic. They'll say it's old. They'll say it's silly. Um, and into this maelstrom comes Yanis Varoufakis, uh, who really, you know, I'm thinking that if we have, you know, sort of imperfect recall of the early 21st century, um, perhaps future historians will go, do you think Varoufakis really was just one guy who did all those things? He seems like some sort of like, international politics trickster archetype, where he shows up in all these situations, exposes their absurdity, and then drives away on a motorcycle into the sunset. Um, an occupation he appears still not to have abandoned. Now, having witnessed Varoufakis's defiance of the elites of Europe, um, during the Greek Eurozone crisis, um, he's got a lot of cred on the left. Um, makes a lot of sense to like this guy, uh, even if you just like, you know, like just the cup of, cut of his jib. Uh, this guy uh, stood up to Europe, stared down the central bankers, written embarrassing things about them in his book. But his goal is very clearly stated. It's to stop Jeremy Corbyn from leaving the Remain side in the European referendum. We don't exactly know who deployed Yanis Varoufakis to make all those speeches with Corbyn. It's not clear how much he was an invited guest and how much he was an imposed guest. Perhaps there are some books in our future of people's memoirs of certain campaigns that will give us a better sense of the role he played. But of course, it's Varoufakis who gives us the slogan, remain and reform. 
oh, we're going to have all of these other anti-globalists in the European Parliament with us. They'll vote with us to make Europe anti-globalist in terms of its economic and labor policies. And I think that um, that tactic is certainly very clever because Varoufakis drew crowds all by himself for that, for the uh, Leave versus Remain debate. Gorman didn't heavily promote his own appearances because I think he found them to be an embarrassment, as he should have. Uh, but then there's the scene at Glastonbury after the first election, after the Brexit vote that really explains what Corbyn is doing. At the end of the day, on the one hand, you say, well, Corbyn mobilized all these young people to come and vote for him. Look at this incredible base of young people who came and voted for him. And he was the charismatic figure everyone loved. But I don't think he felt he had a hold on those voters. And I really feel that he was basking in their appreciation until they figured out who he was. Uh, because what you see by the time of Jeremy Corbyn is that the arguments that he and Varoufakis and the other remainers on the left make, the other former anti-globalists on the left make, are again all cultural arguments. They make no economic arguments. Now, the Thatcherites on, in the Remain side make economic arguments. They say things like, um, the economy is growing, British-born people are getting more employed too, everybody's getting richer, look at how this whole enterprise is increasing prosperity for everyone, a rising tide will lift all boats. Obviously, that's not something Labour could say with a straight face. And what this forces is that, of course, you can't just stay with a positive cosmopolitan message, especially when you're up against Nigel Farage. And that positive cosmopolitan message turns into a, if you don't like free trade, it's because you hate brown people. Only racists oppose free trade. And that, I'm sure it's no one's intention, but by the end of Brexit, that's the problem we're dealing with in Europe. And it's exactly what, uh, and it's one of the crucial forces that screws Bernie Sanders. Because here we have Bernie Sanders appearing out of nowhere in 2016, running on an old fashioned, we will repeal NAFTA campaign. Why is that possible? It's not because of the grassroots left. I mean, Sanders signed up a hell of a lot of the grassroots left and millions donated to him, millions turned out for him. Um, he, he inspired a level of devotion far beyond any of the other great left leaders of that period. But the only reason Sanders could attack NAFTA was because Donald Trump had opened the door. Donald Trump is the one who first makes the anti-NAFTA vote an issue. And so it's only because the far right is saying we can get rid, we should get rid of NAFTA all of a sudden that Bernie Sanders 
that suddenly NAFTA's on the table again, state his position on NAFTA, which is that he thinks it's bad. And this creates all kinds of great openers for Hillary Clinton's surrogates to suggest that Sanders is therefore racist and anti-Semitic. Uh, because we know who opposes global free trade agreements. It's people like Boris Johnson and Jacob Rees-Mogg and Nigel Farage and Donald Trump. And because the Trump campaign and the Brexit campaign are actively collaborating and doing appearances with each other, what we see is that this anti-free trade vote, uh, this anti-globalist vote, um, is really the only, is the main limiting factor on the ability of Bernie Sanders to win cosmopolitan cities. Because it's possible to say in a place like Philadelphia, um, the cosmopolitanism and tolerance of your city is not contingent on the American constitution. It's contingent on NAFTA. And although that argument was not particularly convincing, it was convincing enough, right? Whether Hillary Clinton got 54% of the delegates or 74% of the delegates is neither here nor there. The point is that by the time that after what has taken place in Britain, by the time the next big globalization debate takes place in North America, it's um, there is this tinge of racism and misogyny and intolerance associated with anti-globalization. And now I catch back down in Vancouver, there's a, a minor, there was, um, uh, the most significant pushback the NDP received from within its ranks on any policy since the Oregon government took office is not, as you might imagine, liquefied natural gas or Site C, or the fact that there is now a third corporation that's allowed to charge uh, user fees for seeing your general practitioner. Uh, no, it's the foreign buyer's tax on homes. Um, there are a number of activists who come out of the nobody is illegal movement associated with Harsha Walia and the BC Civil Liberties Association, who begin arguing that not only is no one illegal, no dollar is illegal. Doesn't matter where the dollars come from, you're a racist if you care. And this, um, uh, and this has largely stayed in place. Uh, many friends, uh, uh, many, uh, many of the, one of the things that has happened to me where certain of my friends have gone woke and we've become political enemies, their newfound support for NAFTA often preceded debates about the gender orthodoxy preceded debates about land reform, that if we're looking for the canary, the canary actually isn't women have penises. The canary is not supporting NAFTA as racist. And um, that's, uh, and as we, as we can see, it's very hard for people of 
the left to tolerate being called racists. Of all of the insults that sting, it appears to be the most effective. And uh, I think that's, that's the environment in which we find ourselves. It doesn't explain why the right has adopted anti-globalization, but the fact that the right has, or a faction of the right has, has permitted this new stereotype of the anti-globalist to emerge. In the 1990s, it's Jaggy Singh and um, Garth Mullins. And, um, you know, and today it's, um, you know, Maxime Bernier, even though, of course, Bernier is a globalist and has no problem with any of it. It's interesting to note that Pierre Poilievre is using the Brexit slogan as his campaign slogan and yet supports NAFTA. Um, in Canada, what's happened on the right is um, there is, is a total Canadian policy consensus. There's nobody, no significant political force opposes any of these investor rights treaties uh, from anywhere. Um, however, there are opportunists on the right who are attempting to use culturally driven anti-globalist discourses to win support, even though they're not actually advocating anything on a policy level to follow that up. Now, I, I just need to take another moment. I'm, anyway, that was actually the end of the substance of, of my story of tonight. It sort of takes us back to, uh, sort of, it takes us up to, I guess, about uh, five years ago. Uh, as we move into the conclusion. But now that we're dealing with events um, that have been very much in our lives in the recent past, I'm interested in hearing people's questions and comments. Does anyone else want to say anything first? Oh, Jonathan. Okay, because what this story about Jack Layton reminds me of is that is is something that I've been kind of putting together in my head for the last little while, which is my general theory that that all of our you know, current problems stem from adopting the Palestinian discourse. Because for me, the canary in the coal mine is not Jack Layton, it's Yasser Arafat. And the kind of transformation you mentioned mid-campaign for Layton is what happened to Arafat in 94, when he finally got control of the territory, some territory, and wanted to turn it into an autonomous, economically autarkic, state that could maybe carry on a war in some other terms eventually. And all his advisors who had been put there by the Europeans basically said, no, 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 no. This is, this is going to be a neoliberal state that, that trades with Israel and it's, it's all going to be market mechanisms and the socialism is old fashioned. At I'm going to make you pause there because I'm doing my last run to the door and then I really am. Yeah, then, I, then you really do have my full attention. So stay there. I'll be right back. Ah. Anyone want to stop me? <laughs> please <laughs> okay this has been fermenting for a while i hope it's worth it Will this somehow tie in with Stuart's ideas about land reform, land back here? Yes. Canada, yes. That, um, yes, it will. <laughs> okay, there I am. 
yes, the, the post-political is a big part of this. Yeah. Um, I mean, actually, it's almost pre-political, really. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, that's the thing, is it's post-political in our context. In Palestine, it's pre-political because the Palestinians have never really reconciled themselves to doing politics. They're, they're still doing warfare. So, but it's, you know, um, but they look the same, right? Um, and, it, and it sort of ex explains where Corbyn is right now, because Corbyn is by now like the poster child for being post-political uh, now, <laughs> but was in fact pre-political in, in, you know, for most of his career, effectively. Um, you know, his, his brief tenure as labor leader was the only period of time when he was actually interested in policies that could be achieved through politics. He was usually interested in policies that could be achieved only through armed force. Was he a good, was he good for his constituents? Like, like his, his writing? I don't know that much 1994, about 1994, Arafat versus the advisors. Okay. Oh, yes. Okay, um, here we go. No, I was never in Corbyn's writing except as a tourist. I, I was in Galloway's writing. But uh, yes, <clears throat> the, the, the general theme here is when Arafat realized that being president of Palestine was a little bit better than being mayor of Ramallah and only slightly more interesting. I think this the 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 whole his enthusiasm for the project went out of it and basically just proceeded to sabotage um, all possibility for Palestinian statehood after that and aim for martyrdom. <laughs> um, and I think his motivations were very similar to Jack Layton's, which is at some point you realize that the bureaucrats, the commissars, if you like, are going to sabotage you if you try to have the revolution. And also you you have a fatal disease and you're going to die. So all you can do is build your reputation. And both Lakin and Arafat had the same problem, right? Um, so, um, what, so what happens is, and, and, this, and this is a phenomenon, which in fact, these are just local expressions of a phenomenon for which the British have a general term, which is the crin. The cringe is the thing that makes third way parties happen. All right. The cringe is the thing that made Tony Blair happen and his people exemplified it. And I met his people when I lived there. These are socialists who in 1990 went, oh shit, everything about Marxism is wrong. We don't have an economic policy anymore. And everything we think about economics is fake. I guess we just have to be right wingers, only we can't do that job. So we have to pretend that we're not right-wingers. We have to believe in right-wing economics and just feel bad about the consequences of it and do what we can to mitigate it, right? At that point, every left-wing leader in the world is Saruman. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and I remember meeting uh, the guy who was in charge of the Millennium Dome, like some 20-something schmuck from the Labour Party with a tremendous amount of power who would start every conversation by saying, okay, the first thing you need to know is that we're headed for a period of stagflation. Now, this is completely untrue. He said this in the 90s. Like, we might be entering a period of stagflation now, 30 years later. It was utterly useless and untrue. And also, it was unconnected to anything he later then said about their own policies. But you had to say it because otherwise you weren't serious. Otherwise, they would call you a trot. 
Okay. And so all of the left's discourse shifted from we need a different kind of policy to we must not be racists. And if you were against us, clearly you are racist. That's a fantastic name for a party. Thank you, Hamish. Um, and that got into everything. And it got to Canada 10 years late with Leighton, but everything comes to Canada 10 years late. Um, and But the Palestinians got on this on the ground floor. And they went from saying, look, there's two nations here and we need to either win a war or come to some kind of agreement to saying there is one nation here and half of it are racists. Okay, and it took them, the thing is that the Palestinians have never really opened up. One of the things about this is because it's, it's post-political. It's a, it's a goal that you, don't, that you articulate without ever discussing. And, who, and because you actually know that the only way it's ever gonna happen is by winning a war. It's an unacceptable policy to everybody except your own side. And you just say, but it has to be accepted because everyone who opposes us is racist. And they, the Palestinians went and developed this discourse in which without admitting it, what they're saying is we're all second-class Israeli citizens and we just need equality. Even the people who have literally never lived in Israel are second-class Israeli citizens and need equality. And this argument has sort of rolled outwards to all, through all the NGOs and, and to whom it is absolute catnip. Um, and to the point where they're now parroting it. You have people like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International who basically define Israel as an apartheid state from 1948 because the people expelled during the Nakba don't have the vote. It's a, it's a policy that is, I mean, apart from the fact it's based on lies, is completely unimplementable. And everybody knows this. Like, there's no one on the Israeli left who would implement this. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like, movements like, like parties like Meretz and, and, and movements like Peace Now, which are so far left that they're practically illegal in Israel, if you tell them that this is the policy of the global left, members of those groups will say, these people are idiots who know nothing, and there is no Arab who is stupid enough to even believe what you are saying. And I think they're right. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the Palestinians have resorted to coming up with this new phrase, anti-Palestinianism, as if Jews have some sort of racial animus towards Palestinians that we don't have towards other Arabs. Because obviously we get on well, well with all the other Arabs. It's actually the Arabs get on better with us than they do with the Palestinians for the most part at this point. And, and so they're having to define themselves in effect as a tiny hated race for some obscure reason, which they're now searching through the Old Testament looking for quotes to support. Well, I think this is quite helpful because um, what I hadn't connected was the idea that the second intifada was uh, post-political. Um, but... No, uh, yes, yes, it was. That's exactly right. The second intifada was, was the abandonment. The intifada of... was political. The second yeah. intifada was post-political. That, that's right. The, the, the second intifada was basically saying, we don't want to negotiate. We want, to, we want our martyrdom to bring about an intervention from the world. It's it's a it's a warfare strategy, pure pure and simple, um, and it it sort of has prevented all discourse with the Israelis since, basically. But they don't mm -hmm. want a discourse with the Israelis; they want a discourse with with the woke, with the commissar class elsewhere in the world to sim to, um, and and what it's the only I mean, the only practical function, for instance, of BDS is to get Jews thrown out of the commissar class in the rest of the world. Yes, that's, why, they I, don't I, that's why I couldn't yeah. go along with it, even though, of course, I, you know, I'm at the at the time, I mean, I, I would say I'm a reluctant Zionist now, but I was certainly not a Zionist when I started opposing BDS. 
Um, I opposed it because I didn't want to no Jews sign outside my classroom. Um, because right. at the time when I first encountered BDS, I was teaching at Thompson Rivers University, um, which had a special deal with the government of Saudi Arabia around Saudi students. And they had had to construct um, a second campus mosque that met the needs of Wahhabis um, who felt that the Sunni mosque was insufficiently holy. And so in fact, there was like an infrastructure deal associated with this deal with the Saudis. And I'm thinking, well, this is, this is a glaring context. I, I can't argue that the citizens of the only democracy, functioning democracy in the Arab Middle East can't be in my classroom, but um, I have to deform my lecture schedule to meet the uh, call to prayer uh, for Wahhabis. Um, I was like, why am I letting the Saudi students into my classroom then? Like, I don't, I don't quite get it. And then it just, I thought, oh God, this is like the animal rights movement and the currency reform movement. The Jew haters have taken over a probably perfectly reasonable Palestinian nationalist club. And now here we are. Yeah, but, the, but it's important to say this was actually not a reasonable Palestinian nationalist no. club. I remember reasonable Palestinian nationalists from when I was in college. We got on perfectly well. Mm -hmm. The reason I fell, out with B, I fell out with BDS at the point where I literally tried to join them only to be met by the explanation that, of course, they don't want the suicide bombings to stop. Those are essential. Those are natural. They'll just continue until we win. And also, remember, we're dealing with an apartheid state. You can't negotiate with people like that. There will never be negotiations. <laughs> wow, what an amazing assertion to make. <laughs> I think knowing anything about South Africa is just turns you into a misanthrope. If you have any kind of detailed understanding of South Africa, every time anyone compares anything to South Africa, they're wrong. And uh, really, like every time. Um, mm. And it's, it's infuriating. And it's like, no, I will, I will agree that there are comparable things about these two states that started in 1948 based on like a populist nationalism of an oppressed people in a complex multi-ethnic environment. That is how both states started. And so it, wouldn't, it shouldn't surprise us that there are moments of historical resonance. But what I think a lot of people don't realize is that when a party had reached its crescendo, it wasn't just shoot summarily shooting and torturing more black people in South Africa than it ever had before. It was also conducting the most ambitious land reform and land redistribution campaign in the history of South Africa. So it wasn't just shooting bullets at all these black people. It was throwing land at them. It was, it was a total kitchen sink moment in geopolitics. P.W. Bota's government is a fascinatingly bizarre thing because Bota's position was, I'm going to try everything at once and see if anything works at all, because I think we're pretty much done. And I, you know, and I can see how superficially you might be tempted to think that Arik Sharon is that guy in Israel, but actually, mm -hmm. no. Oh, the, say the, more. The, the thing is that the historical resonances are there, but actually, they're all they're all in, in way different overtones. Um, there are there are really just coincidences. 
um, the, the 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 people who are trying to construct, who have always been, I mean, the real the real resonances are are with the UN and the Arab League, and um, and the apartheid that's being constructed around the Palestinians is in fact constructed by the Arabs. And that, oh, but yes, the because what they're trying to do is integrate Israel into a labor system developed by the British um, pr- during the um, um, during the uh, after the um, let me say that again the labor system developed by the British uh, during the mandatory period that had its origins in the period after the Indian Mutiny. The idea of non-citizen labor, non-citizen resident labor, and stateless resident labor um, is such a is such a fundamental to the labor systems of the Arabian Peninsula and the way they integrate with uh, places like Algeria that there's a strong magnetic force. And if you the 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 piece the <laughs> Right. The piece, the blog post I did, I think it's three posts ago, where I'm furious at everybody, but nobody seems to mind. Like, Terry Glavin has never tolerated such an anti-Israeli diatribe. I I see your point here. And one of the reasons I I was able to do that is I was able to make a distinction between things that are done uniquely by Israel to Palestinians and things that are the Israeli adoption of Middle Eastern practices that they had resisted and eventually capitulated to. And so, you know, the way Palestinian voting and Palestinian labor and Palestinian mobility work, um, that's, that's just a capitulation to the uh, the labor system of the Arab Middle East. It's an uh, it's conformity to that. Whereas there are other That's things about Israeli policy that are highly unique that people use to shock. But yeah, and so of course the other Arab states are looking and say, "Hey, you guys have got the one of the biggest, most desperate groups of mobile non-citizen labor, and you educate your mobile non-citizen labor better than we do often. And so, um, you know, these folks can be at the oil rig supervising the Algerians. Well, that was that was actually my plan for, or, well, not my plan, but my, my thought of, of how things should have been done in the first place, which, which is essentially that at this point, Jewish capital should mo- should mobilize Palestinian personnel and connections and mobility in the Arab world to use them as the intermediates um, for for driving the prosperity of the entire region. And I just felt bad that the Palestinians were being left out because now we can cut deals with the UAE and do this directly ourselves, and we are. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a Middle Eastern labor system. Period. So I know we spent a, um, a fair bit on this, but I think it's been fruitful to go to the Arafat case, uh, that first moment of loss of hope, because, of course, the Arafat narrative is a more dramatic narrative of people pinning hopes to a leader and then that leader losing hope. I, I, we, we'd struggle to find a better character study of that than Arafat. So I think it's very useful. We don't just see him as early. We see him as archetypal in in the relationship to hope 
that other less impressive leaders like Layton end up representing. Yeah. Or Tony Blair or yeah. Barack Obama. They, they do <laughs> the same thing, but they don't lose as much hope. <laughs> they don't disappoint as many people. They don't drag their people down as far. That's but in true. Cor- and uh, I th- but, but Corbyn is the first example, actually, of, well, maybe, maybe Trump is the other example, of people say, of getting past the loss of hope and coming up with a real nostalgia figure. Right, I see. Maybe Sanders is that too, but basically saying, no, 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 actually we're going to have the old fashioned policies that make no sense. We're just going to insist. We're not gonna, we're gonna step out of the consensus and, and we're going to have this child's crusade, ghost dance level response. Yeah, I think that's, that's fair. Certainly there is, uh, um, there's some of that. I, I tend to view Sanders as a person of fundamentally greater substance than the rest of them mm. because I, I know his whole career narrative. Um, and I think that, um, and so it's like, what is the first time you see Bernie Sanders show up as a national political figure? He's Jesse Jackson's New England surrogate in 1984 as the mayor of Burlington, Vermont. For, as mayor of Burlington, he was always an important figure to me because Burlington yeah. is right oh, across yeah. the border from Montreal. And he was like, look, we have an actual socialist politician in America. There is hope. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that um, Sanders always had, I think, a, a very long historical view. And like, People would say to me a few years ago before, you know, Sanders was defeated the second time, why can't we just do what Bernie did? I go, well, first of all, we'd have to build a time machine and go back 50 years and start then. Because mm-hmm. Sanders' first campaign for statewide office is in 1970 when he runs for governor. Um, and Sanders, right, is a fringe party candidate through the 70s but very educated, very steeped, very early to the climate file, et cetera. And and then he decides to make this independent run in Burlington because he can see that Vermont is rapidly switching from from being the all Republican voting state to being the all Democrat voting state. And that he he can make that transition easier for them by being an independent mayor with an independent base because they're dealing with a problem of brand rather than policy. But very early on, like if you look at the way he structured his presidential campaigns, they're all based on the campaign that signed him up. He learned a lot of the stuff that he did in 2016 and 2020 from the Jesse Jackson campaigns of 1984 and 88. Um, and in particular, his creation of the organization Our Revolution is a direct tribute and reference to Jackson's creation of the Rainbow Coalition in 1985. Um, this understanding, which is similar to Corbin's, that you're essentially occupying hostile territory by being the leader of your party. And therefore, That's what Jackson thought he would be. That's what Sanders thought he would be. That's what Corbyn knew he was. And so for that reason, you can't march your whole army into the party because you mean need to call for reinforcements and reinvade. And 
that's the that's the kind of container that momentum functioned as for Corbin that uh, our revolution and Rainbow Coalition did for uh, Sanders and Jackson, which is a level of sophistication you don't see in Canadian politics at all. I specifically said this to Dimitri Lascaris about the Green Party leadership. I said, if you march all your troops in, I've made this mistake, Dimitri. I know why these smarter guys have gone the other way. I marched all my troops into COPE. I should have left them, half of them, outside the organization. Because when you're inside a shit party like that, it's like you're in the Somme. Everybody is just covered in blood and mud and problems and shit all day, every day. The effect of, on your troops' morale of occupying the territory is absolutely fucking brutal. So you've got to rotate your troops in and out of the thing you're occupying. Anyway, that was lost on me. I'm just on the list of dumb Canadians who made the same mistake. Uh, but at least after the making the mistake, I could suddenly go, oh, that's what momentum's for. That's what uh, our revolution is for. Uh, other questions or comments? I know we've ranged all over the place. And I've been pretty disorganized and up and down the stairs, but uh, anybody else got anything? Well, that's great because I gotta, I gotta, uh, I got my next thing. It started three minutes ago.